Now, do you think if, if Jesus told you to do something, that you would do it? Not like, you know, you kind of have a, a, a voice or something like, God, is that you? But like you lived during the time of Jesus. Jesus was there in the flesh in front of you, and he, he gave you some instructions. Like, as my follower, I want you to do this. Do you think you would do it? Hope so. Hope so. The early church was giving some very clear instructions by Jesus to do a few things. And they failed miserably. Uh, we have four biographies of the life of Jesus, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the next, kind of the next chapter is the book of Acts. And the four Gospels all start with some instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples. And Acts starts the same way. Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus says, you will receive the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And in Matthew 28, we call it the Great Commission. Jesus said, as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I'll be with you to the very end. Like that was Jesus' last words. And his followers, I mean, they, they kind of get it, but not really. Mostly, they're just staying in and around Jerusalem for the first couple years. Just amongst, amongst the Jews, they're staying where it's culturally comfortable for them to stay. Um, and so God has to use persecution to get them to take the first step. Like the, the Christians, they are persecuted for their faith. And so uh, wisely, I mean, they're being taken to prison. Stephen is killed. And some of them are like, we're out of here. Like, this is not safe for us anymore. And so as they went, they began to tell people about Jesus because they got that little nudge, that little nudge from God. But even when they went, they still just kept it amongst their own people. So for them, when, when they heard Jesus say, go into all the world, they said, okay, but we'll keep it amongst our own people. So they kind of were fulfilling the, the Great Commission, but not really um, so in Acts chapter 10, we talked about it last week. Uh, the first church didn't fully understand what they had been called to, but that changes in Acts chapter 10. And we're, we don't have time to, to review everything uh, to go into Acts chapter 11, but Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 are, are related. So if you have your Bibles, you want to look at Acts, uh, get them out to Acts chapter 11, where we'll be uh, spending our morning together. But in Acts chapter 10, God moves supernaturally on his church, and to open their eyes, especially on, on Peter, to see that this gospel is for all people. And, and God moves to bring Jews and non-Jews together. And um, if you haven't, if you weren't here last week, go back and read Acts chapter 10 and just see all the times that God is working, that God is, is moving. There's two main, two main characters in Acts chapter 10. Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus, one of the main leaders. Cornelius, was a, a non-Jew, didn't know about Jesus. And Peter has a change of heart through a series of uh, circumstances. And he, he even tells Cornelius and the people there, like, God has changed my heart. I'm no longer to see you as unclean. And they were like, thank you. Thank you for that, not seeing us as unclean. But the, the fact that God had to send multiple strong supernatural signs to Peter in order to get him to even visit a Gentile, like, he wouldn't have done it if God hadn't been working on him, speaking in his life. It just shows how strong the racial divide was 
between Jews and non-Jews, especially on behalf of Jews towards uh, the Romans, people who they considered the, their oppressors. But Peter learned, and we're going to reemphasize this again today, that God does not make distinctions between uh, peoples, between nations, and that in the kingdom of God, there's no place for racism, there's no place for nationalism, there's no place for tribalism or cultural snobbery or even sexism in God's kingdom. Uh, and from this point on, Acts chapter, after Acts chapter 10, the church is beautifully multi-ethnic. Uh, they all embrace one another. They all get along. They're all encouraging one another. Um, they never had any more racial issues. If you believe that, I've got an oceanside piece of property for you in Arizona. I'd like to sell you. Uh, because what we see in Acts chapter 11 is the exact opposite. So Acts 10, God has moved. He's brought Jews and Gentiles together. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 11. Let's see what happens next. So verse 1. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And so they celebrated. No. Verse 2. I mean, news is traveling fast. Like Gentiles, they received the word of God? Who would have thought? Verse 2 says, So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers... That's an interesting way to phrase things. I'm glad we don't have those distinctions uh, anymore amongst us. Like, circumcised over here, not circumcised over here. But basically, that just means the Jewish believers. So when we're reading that, when it comes, when it says about the circumcised believers, it just means Jewish believers. And they criticized Peter. Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. They what? The Gentiles have received the word of God. They're criticizing the move of God. God is moving, the people criticize, and in particular, they criticize Peter's methods. And, and the good news has finally reached the Gentiles, but the Jewish believers, they don't receive it as good news, what God has done over here. And they said to him, you went into the house of, an uncircumcised, of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, he might be wondering why we say every week that God has called us to follow Jesus, love our neighbors, and build an economically and racially diverse church. And certain Sundays we, we delve into some race issues and culture issues, and it gets a little bit uncomfortable. And you're like, Matthew, just stick with the gospel. Just stick with the Jesus loves me, this I know. Well, I can't help it because Scripture talks about it over and over again. Like even as we read the book of Acts, it points out the different ethnicities who are coming to Christ. The Samaritans, they came to Christ. The Ethiopian came to Christ. Last week, as we read, it was the Italian man who came to Christ. So the Bible talks about it a lot. I've got a few reasons why we, we talk about it. There it is. See? The Bible talks about it a lot. Um, and so the second reason we talk about it is that Jesus prayed for a reconciled church in John 17. That was one of his prayers, that his people would be one. The third reason we talk about it is we see this in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, it's a beautifully multi-ethnic church. Not yet. Not in the chapters we're in, but it's about to be by the end of chapter 11. We see the church that stands before Jesus. This is the fourth reason uh, why we uh, talk about being a racially diverse church. The church that stands before Jesus when he makes all things new. 
is a church made up of all peoples, all tribes, all nations, all tongues. Uh, so why do we talk so much about racial issues? And this fifth one, it's not even on the screen, this is a bonus. The fifth reason we talk about this uh, continually, we come back to it over and over, is because our hearts are jacked. That's a little term I picked up in seminary. That's um, also synonymous with messed up, broken. Like our hearts have some fundamental issues, and if we're not careful, uh, I mean, the Bible describes our hearts as being desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Like, so we have to keep coming back to it. And in Acts chapter 11, this good news has gone out, and the Jewish believers, do they rejoice? No, they are not happy. They criticize. What's, what's wrong with you? How could you go into the house? And they heard that the Gentiles had believed, but they criticized Peter. And you might be thinking, man, what, what is wrong with these people? What is the big deal? Why would they care so much? about Peter going into a non-Jewish person's house. Well, Peter had gone against social norms. He had a broken Jewish law. Uh, and, it's, and it seems like, and it doesn't say this, but I wonder if, if Peter had just invited the Gentiles into his space, if they would have been okay with that. Because notice, they didn't say they were upset that they came to Jesus. They were upset that Peter has gone into their house. He has broken social norms and it's Peter's engaging them socially, sharing a meal with them, going into their home that gets them upset. Oh, sure, tell them about Jesus. But just don't fraternize with them. Of course, of course God loves them. We're equal, but separate. We don't have issues like that in our country, thankfully. Uh, and, and for the Jewish believers, this was a matter of identity. And it was a... a in, in their mind, Peter had betrayed their covenantal identity with God. Like, we can't lose our culture, we can't lose our identity. And so the Jews were, at this time, they were a scattered people. They had been scattered throughout the nations. And the only thing that kept them together as a people was their, their cultural identity. And so Peter going into a, a non-Jewish house is, in a sense, like, the Jews thought he was going to lose his identity. Like, we have to stick together. We have to keep our identity as, as a people. And so they were uh, offended. Like, we are separate. We worship Yahweh, the, the one God. And, and so for us reading back 2,000 years ago, we tend to see this as like a, an ethnocentric deal that they had going on. But it was much more than that. Like, this was who they were. And when they, when they see Peter go into Cornelius' house, they are... They're a bit dumbfounded. Like, how can you go and be with the people who don't share your story, who don't share your identity? And Peter defends himself in verse chapter 4, you'll see. And he tells him what happens. He's like, listen, I wouldn't have believed it either. And it says, from, he tells them from the beginning, we pick up in verse 5. It says, I was in the city of Joppa. I was praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to where I was. I looked into it and I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts and reptiles, birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever, has ever entered my mouth. The voice from heaven spoke a second time. Do not call anything impure 
that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea, so Peter's in Joppa, one city, some guys had been sent down from another city, stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me. <laughs> I love that. It's like Peter's thinking, uh, I don't know, but like if I'm in trouble, well, they're in trouble too because I didn't go by myself. These six guys, they were with me, so don't just criticize me, all right? And we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send a Joppa for Simon, who was called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remember what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. I mentioned this last week, but it merits repeating. Anytime something in Scripture is repeated, we need to pay attention. Like God is trying to tell us something. And in this first part of chapter 10, it is almost verbatim, or chapter 11 is almost verbatim from chapter 10. And it could have been that Luke, the author, could have just said, Peter told him everything that happened, and then they praised God. I mean, like, why waste the parchment telling us, again, um, one of the books I've been gleaning from in this series as I've been studying is a Bible commentary by Willie James Jennings. He is a professor of, of theology and Africana studies at, uh, I believe it's Yale Divinity School. He's received quite a few academic awards for his work, including the largest prize for a theological work in North America. And in his chapter on Acts chapter 11, here's what he says. He says, Peter's experience reveals God. Why does Luke need to repeat in detail the events of chapter 10? For emphasis, of course, but more importantly, he does it to show the breaking open of a life, Peter's life, and to show the breaking open of a people's life, Israel's life. The drama must be told in detail so that the hearers can begin to see their lives in it. Oh, I like that. Like, it wasn't just the hearers then. It's the hearers now. Like, are we seeing ourselves in the story as it's told again and again? God spoke to Peter, and now through Peter, God is speaking to the saints gathered there to hear. He remembered a promised baptism for the Jewish body and saw with his own eyes the baptismal promise stretched over Gentile bodies. This is a miracle. This is earth-shattering, world-altering truth. Peter speaks, and his own people are reduced to silence. So all throughout Acts chapter 10, we saw that God is divinely at work. Like the sovereignty of God is there. God is, he's, he's working, he's moving. And, and it's not so much that Peter and Cornelius have no agency. Like they can't resist what God is doing. They have to respond to what God is doing. But this is a beautiful example of the sovereignty of God working with our, within our response to God. Um, and so we see God working in, in this whole encounter, first in the divine vision. Peter has his vision, all the sheets with unclean animals, um, and he's so ingrained in his way of thinking that God has to speak to him six times, is what it says. 
Like the sheet came down, I heard a voice that said, get up, Peter, kill and eat it. He heard that three times. And then do not call anything impure that God has made clean. He heard that three times. And each time that God is, is speaking to him, it's like a hammer on Peter's conscience. It's like a hammer on his past. It's a hammer on his identity that God is breaking down some real issues within Peter. And not just Peter, but the people of God. So we see God at work in the divine, this divine vision. We see God at work in the divine command. In verse 12, the Holy Spirit tells Peter to go, and he takes six guys with him. So there's seven total that go from Joppa to Caesarea. Now, I'm not a big uh, Bible numbers guy. Like as far as there's some people that like to assign numbers to everything and almost like secret codes. And if you know these numbers and special meanings, that's not my lane. At, at all. I don't run in, run in that circle. Um, but it is interesting here. This number number seven. And the Jews would have known the Egyptian law that said uh, that there were seven witnesses necessary to completely prove a case. But not only that, Roman law said that there were seven seals were necessary to authenticate important documents like a will. So there's seven guys going. It's almost like God is ready for their objections and be like, well, that was just Peter. Peter was way off. Oh, no, no, no. Now we have six witnesses, seven total. You can't refute that. God is at work in the divine command. God is at work in the divine preparation. God has prepared Cornelius. An angel has, has spoken to Cornelius. And something different in chapter 11 than chapter 10 is that Cornelius said the angel had said, send to Peter, he has a message that will save you and your family. And God is preparing Cornelius for what is about to happen. God is at work. God is at work in the divine action. And as Peter speaks, the Holy Spirit falls on them. And Peter remembers this promise that Jesus had given to his disciples. You'll be baptized with power. And, and so we see this in Acts 11, verse 16. And Peter's conclusion was, if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And Peter immediately went back. He sees what's happening in front of him with the Gentiles. He goes back a few years to the day of Pentecost and realizes, oh, what happened to us, what happened to the 120 in the upper room is happening to them. And if it's happening to them, it must be of God. And so we see the divine vision, the divine command and preparation and ac action. And each time, God is hammering away at their prejudice. God is hammering away at the way that they have, have seen the world prior to this point. And, and God is shifting and he's expanding their understanding of the kingdom of God. And Peter gets it. God has welcomed, welcomed Gentiles into his family. That's good news. I think most of us today would qualify as, as Gentiles. We have been welcomed into the family because of what happened in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. And then Peter asked the rhetorical question, who was I to stand in the way? But really, he was saying to his, his, the other believers, who are you? Who are you to stand in the way of what God wants to do? And when they heard this, verse 18 says, they had no further objections. Some translations say they quieted down. Some says they fell silent because this had been a contentious moment. It wasn't like they had just, you know, well, tell us about that, Peter. Why, why did you go over there? 
Like, no, this, this was full of accusation toward Peter and, and criticism towards him. But in that moment, they began praising God and said, so then even Gentiles, to even Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And their criticism stopped and their worship began. The criticism stopped and the worship began. And I don't know if they, they broke into song uh, as, a, as I was read that. I don't know if you're the type of person that breaks into song. You're like, yeah, when well, nobody's listening, maybe. Uh, but the, the song that we, one of the songs we sing these days that just says, Oh, what a Savior, isn't he beautiful? Sing hallelujah. Christ is risen. And I, got, I don't know if they like broke into that type of praise, but as they began to contemplate that this gospel was for all people, they just broke, broke into praise. They broke into praise. They broke in. There we go. There we go. Uh, the credibility of the gospel is at stake if we claim we have a message of God's love for all people but then all people don't feel welcome when they're here with us. That our message will not be heard. And when we consider the stories, of these early stories of conversion with the Samaritans and Ethiopian and the Roman soldier, it should cause us to ask and to think, if God doesn't show partiality in reaching out to others, why is partiality allowed to exist within the local church today? If God welcomes men and women of every nation, tribe, people, and tongue into his kingdom, why is it that the vast majority of churches in the United States are not likewise welcoming diverse peoples into their midst? You're like, Matthew, how, do you, how can you say that? Because 90% of churches in America are segregated. 90% of churches in America are segregated. And the, and the typical response is our church would never turn anyone away. And I believe people sincere, they mean that sincerely a lot of times, most of the time, hopefully. They would never turn anyone away and, and they would say, you know, our church is welcoming to everyone, they, they can worship with us, even become members regardless of race and economics and we even pray that God would help us to become a diverse church. And so I, I in no way want to um, doubt the sincerity of that type of uh, response and, and desire. And we should be praying that we would have a church that reflects our neighborhood. We pray for that ourselves, that we would have a church that reflects the kingdom of God. But the, the fact is, while they might not turn others away, they do nothing that invites people in, that creates a space where people feel safe. And there, there is a large difference there between just an inviting and accommodating and um, Usually the invitation is, come on in. Come on and worship like us, think like us, be like us. Like who, who would feel welcome in that? Don't challenge anything that we're doing. Don't uh, try to raise your voice. I mean, it's hard to change. Acts chapter 11, chapter 10, it proves it is hard to change. Even devout followers of Jesus, it is hard for us to change. But... When we gather here on Sundays, it is not about us. It's not about what we prefer, what we're comfortable with. In fact, let's just, let's just make this uncomfortable for a minute. It's about to get real. I'm going to have some volunteers. We're going to have an illustrated sermon for a moment. Jacoby, if you could help me help out here. 
Um, and then I need a, 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 few, a few white guys. Any white guys like to bounce? You're like, I don't know what I'm getting into, Matthew. You're just putting a black guy over here. You're putting a white guy. What's about to happen? Who's, I need, I need some, some brave white souls. I'm not, it's a white, white. Yeah, Josh, come on. I need, I need like five or six, five or six. Just come on down. Just come on, yeah. Mm-hmm. Two, mm-hmm. Good, good. All right, you're going to stand here. White guys, here. You're like, what is happening? Uh, a couple more, a couple more white guys. Let's go. Ahead. There we go. Step right up. <clears throat> All right. So, let's just say, like, uh, I don't even know what's happening right here now, Matthew. <laughs> what is, what have we signed up for here? Uh, let's just say you have a, a predominantly uh, white church. And so who's going to feel most welcome at the predominantly white church? White people. All right, that's an easy one. That's a softball. I'm just laying it up there for you. Uh, yeah, white, white people are going to feel more comfortable. And we've, I think we've all been in spaces where we have felt uncomfortable, if, especially if you are a minority person of color. Have you ever been in a space where you were the only person of color? Never. Ne- never. Uh, if you're white, have you ever been the only white person in a, in a space? Yeah. Uh, occasionally, not as often, just based on pure numbers, all right? Based on across the board, in Denver, you're most likely, it's going to be mostly, mostly white people. But do you remember what it's like to be in a space where you are the, the only one of whichever, you're the only white person, only black person there, like it can and especially for white people because we don't feel it as often. Like it doesn't, it's not part of our experience as much. It, like, I mean, it's just not a very freeing experience. Is it, do you feel like you can speak up? Do you, do you feel like you can have your voice be heard? And so, uh, so this predominantly white church, they want to be a, a diverse church. So they pray for diversity and they, they invite uh, minorities and they're most welcoming to whoever However, when someone from another culture shows up, they have to take a large step into this other space. So let's say we have a predominantly white church, a black man shows up, and he has to take a, I mean, he has to come from way over here to way over here, <laughs> way over, and that's very uncomfortable. Is that very uncomfortable? Say yes. Say yes. yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, very, very un- uncomfortable. And uh, like I said, the, the Jewish believers, I think we're okay with the Gentiles coming into their space and coming into our culture and, and assimilating it and being like us. You want to come back over here? Thanks. All right. You guys are doing fantastic so far, nailing it. Um, we didn't even rehearse this. But what got Peter in hot water and what got them upset was that, uh, want to be Peter? When Peter came over here, into the space of the Gentiles. Now, one caveat, this is not a one-for-one example, as if uh, the Jewish believers represented white America and the the Gentiles represented uh, minorities in America because it was the Jews who, in fact, were the minority in the Roman Empire. So it's not exactly a one-for-one, but I think the principle still remains is that Peter was willing to take a step and enter the culture and the space of the one whom his group had previously despised, his people had previously despised. And, and the gospel was the, uh, the motivating factor. 
It wasn't for the sake of quotas or, or being progressive, but it was the, that Jesus had changed Peter's heart to non, towards non-Jewish people. It wasn't like just trying to, it wasn't um, progressive at that, at that time. And so practically this group needs to do more than just pray and invite. They need to move into the space of minorities. And if you're a minority, you might be like, come in my space. <laughs> Give me my, my space. All right, you guys did great. Thank you. Have a seat. That was, was that all right? Yeah. Give me a hand. We need to be willing to let go of some of our own preferences and desires. And are you willing, for the sake of the gospel, to move into uncomfortable spaces? That's what Peter did. He moved into an uncomfortable space. It led to some uncomfortable conversations. Are you willing to lay aside your own preferences? I wonder what, what was going through Peter's mind the first time he went into a, the gent, to Cornelius' house. Like his whole life he'd been told you can't go there. Like that is not appropriate. And so I wonder like if he walks in and if he's like, oh, I'm going to be struck down for this. Like what, what is my family going to say? What is, like I don't. But he pushed past that because he had heard from God and God had changed his heart. Uh, Najee and I have had some conversations about this topic and our church and the culture of the church. And, you know, one of the like low-hanging fruits in this discussion is, uh, is music and music style. Um, and as a church, we want to move more and more to have more and more gospel music. Like that is our, our desire. Um, because it's, it's, good. it's good. It's good music. Um, I mean, if it were up to me and my, my preferences, I'm fine with, like, Hillsong, Bethel, like, elevation worship, you know, contemporary Christian, which in one sense is, is white Christian music. All right, can we just say it? Okay. Uh, however... If that's the kind of church, then we're asking people to make a huge step into that space instead of having uh, music that is engaging across cultures. Um, so we need to, to take a step in the other direction. And it might help us in, in terms of, um, I mentioned a few times the term assimilation versus accommodation. Like assimilation is like, come be with uh, like us. Accommodation is let me change so you feel more comfortable. There's, there's a vast difference there. Um, you know, and I would love for us to have someone to lead a ministry uh, of dance for our, our teenagers, our kids, like step ministry and things, but that's not me. Like, I, I can't. I'm not even trying. Like, if I tried to do it, it would look like river dance. That is not what we're going for. All right? But more, more expressions and... Um, for, for those of you who are, are part of this church that are, are not white, like we need your voice in this process. We need to hear from you. We need you to, to be up here where, where I am, speaking to us and, and sharing with us and how, how we can do better at this as a church and as, as a family. Because uh, being a multi-ethnic church doesn't mean that we lose our ethnicity and like we're all... Like we, 
There's too much that could be said. All right. So are we willing, the question today I want you to consider, are we willing for the sake of the gospel to move into uncomfortable spaces? Are you willing to lay aside your preferences? Are you willing to be the one who takes a step out of your comfort zone? And as I close, we're going to move uh, to communion. But notice that just in Acts chapter 9, Saul has come to faith. Now in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius has come to faith. And there are considerable differences between these two men. There's differences in race. Saul is a Jew, Cornelius a Gentile. In culture, Saul is a scholar. He's a white-collar kind of guy. Cornelius is a soldier. It's about as blue-collar as you can get. In religion, Saul is a bigot and Cornelius is a seeker, yet both are converted by the gracious initiative of God. Both of them were candidates for salvation. Both received forgiveness of sins. Both received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Both were baptized and welcomed into God's family, not based on their own merits, but on the merits of Jesus Christ. Amen? I almost got excited right there. And the good news of Jesus is powerful and it's impartial and it is still the power of God and the salvation for all who believe. For all who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile.